Two Tribes is a two-part documentary series for RTE looking at the history of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and their roots in the Irish Civil War and how an intense rivalry gave way eventually to a coalition government. Now we bring you extended interviews with participants in the series. Peter Prandegast is credited with professionalising Fine Gael in the late 1970s, bringing the party up to 70 seats under Garrett Fitzgerald. My family had no political background at all. My father worked in the bank, and bankers were told, don't take a political line. Uh, so I, I, I never had a, a party background at all. But when I was in college, the EC was formed, and I got interested in that. And when I graduated from, from UCD, I went and did management training in Germany. Uh, and it was another 12 or 13 years before Ireland actually joined the EEC. But that, that interested me, and uh, Gareth Fitzgerald was interested in Europe and, and promoting it. So that kind of drew my, my attention towards him. And then Declan Costello came along and seemed to want to do something. I was very critical uh, about how the country was run particularly having come back from Germany, where things seemed to work better. And I kind of felt, uh, I mean, you had to get permission to go to Trinity from the bishop. Uh, and I remember the horror of my father when he discovered one day I was eating steak on a Friday in the canteen in Germany. And over here, you'd go to hell if you uh, ate meat on a Friday. So that kind of thing upset me. Uh, so everybody said, well, look, if you're so critical of the whole thing, you have to try and do something about it. So I joined Fine Gael. I became uh, chairman of the National Council in two years after joining the party. I was on the national executive in the third year uh, and wound up as a candidate in 1973. Uh, I went along from the national executive to supervise the convention in Dublin South East, and I wound up as a candidate, the third hind-tit candidate, as they call it, uh, on, on, on the tickets, which showed how inept the whole party organisation was, that somebody who went along, no background, no capacity to be elected at all, wound up as a candidate. And that was uh, the kind of way the party was run. So uh, I was active right through the 70s. I, uh, when Garrett was foreign minister, I did his uh, uh, clinics. Uh, every Saturday I did the clinics in Ringsend and Donnybrook and places like that. Uh, so by the time we got to 77, when the government was kicked out and Garrett became leader, uh, I was fairly experienced. Uh, I had a good idea as to how Fine Gael worked and what the kind of problems and weaknesses were. What state was the party in at that stage? It had uh, been swept from, from government uh, by yeah. that great Fianna Fáil 84-seat uh, victory. Yeah. Um, what, what was your brief from Garrett Fitzgerald? What, what, came, what did Garrett say to you when he appointed you General Secretary? He, he didn't say. First of all, I was recruited by Richie Ryan and Tom Fitzpatrick. Uh, Garrett didn't recruit me, he, he delegated the job to them and there was an open competition and, and uh, I got it. So uh, the first thing, I was ushered into 16 Hume Street and I, I was totally horrified at that. So I said, I'm not going to work in here. Uh, 
So uh, my first contact with Garrett was basically to say, we have to get a new headquarters, uh, which we did. Uh, and uh, I was fairly conscious that most of the Fine Gael supporters who I knew were totally horrified at being perpetual losers. And they wanted to win. And they would respond to anything or anybody who made them think that they could win. Uh, and moving into a, a new headquarters w w was a huge psychological thing for them. Uh, because we moved in across the road from Fianna Fáil in a slightly better building. We paid for it in a year. We ran by a brick to build the, the headquarters and we sold them all over the country. And we paid for the building uh, uh, in a year. And uh, one of the, 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 the critical things was a lot of supporters of Fine Gael were ashamed to publicly say they were Fine Gael. And I remember, for instance, going to Carlo one time and we, with Garrett, and we had uh, a meeting inviting the town in. The Fine Gael fellas slunk in, making sure nobody saw them getting into the hotel uh, and whatever. A year later, we went back, and they all came in wearing badges. Uh, so the, you, you could get a response. How was that change brought about? Was it you? Was it Garrett? What happened? It was a combination, but uh, I recruited 40 constituency organisers, all of whom were volunteers. Not a single one of them was paid. Uh, I handpicked those, uh, which was quite a problem because a lot of local TDs and that didn't want you to handpick uh, people. The way I managed to do that was I persuaded uh, people to accept that uh, my organisers would never stand for election. And Ted Nealon, who was a colleague with me at the time and had been recruited at the same time, was doing the same thing with PROs. And we brought, we, we, we brought in an unwritten rule, but which basically said the organiser of the PRO would be free to work in the constituency, they can do all kinds of things, and they will not be a threat to the TD because they will not be standing against them. And that, that was fairly critical. So what kind of people to perform that function did you go after, did you identify and, and bring on board? Well, I, I went for my organisers, a lot of whom were teachers or managers and people like that. They were, they were skilled people, very skilled, more, much more skilled than I was. Uh, but that's what you needed if you were going to get the job done. Uh, and we then brought in uh, what became known as the National Handlers, uh, who were skilled people who had an interest, people like Frank Flannery and uh, Shane Malloy, Jerry Hussey, all the, uh, these, these kinds of people. And they, they were a huge advantage because they were well outside, they weren't involved in the day-to-day -day running of anything. Uh, so their view of what was happening uh, or what might happen, or what could happen, or what would be a good thing to do, was hugely beneficial. When you combine that with uh, a core of very skilled people in each constituency, you were well on the way. Over time, though, the national handlers, uh, so-called, became, if you like, in the eyes of their critics, or at least this was thing thrown, that they were manipulating Garrett, that Garrett, Garrett was a kind of a puppet on a string almost. Ah, yeah, but that's normal. I mean, everybody, a bit like uh, Boris Johnson is accused of being run by his wife. Uh, Garrett was always accused of being run by Joan, 
and and whatever. John would would would, would talk to him, but. Uh, Gareth made up his own mind about what he, what he wanted to do. Or... But as you mentioned, Joan Fitzgerald, she was she was very influential with him, wasn't she? She was because she was a, she was an intelligent person who had a huge interest in politics. Uh, and and if I wanted Gareth to do something, I would often persuade Joan, uh, and she'd have a quiet word with him. That's how Peter Sutherland became commissioner. Uh, I suggested to Joan that Peter was by far the best. The, the most likely candidate around the place. She persuaded Garrett overnight. <laughs> what other kind of ideas did you plant in John's mind with a view to them being passed oh, on? I can't remember, but I mean, it, 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 it was reasonably often, you know, that uh, something needed to be done. Are there other examples that you can think of where she might have used her influence? I mean, apparently she used to ring him quite frequently. Uh, in the middle of cabinet meetings any hour of the day. I remember she used to ring, asking him to bring home sausages for lunch or uh, things like that. I mean, there were a lot of domestic things. Uh, I, I had great fun with her at one stage. She, when I became General Secretary of Fine Gael, Joan used to ring up fairly regularly and I got pissed off with that. Excuse the, uh, the expression, but uh, one day she rang and I just put the phone in the drawer. Uh, left her, and we had a great relationship ever since. Uh, <laughs> Garrett rolled around the place laughing at the idea, but I left her talking to the drawer for about 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> Are there particular constituencies, Peter, that you would look back on and say, OK, we, we, we did well there, I mean, in terms of overturning a, a kind of a, a mindset that was not a winning one? Well, the big one would have been Wexford. I mean, John Esmond was, was in Wexford, uh, and it was a one-seat constituency. Well, by the time uh, I finished in, in Fine Gael, there were three Fine Gael TDs in Wexford. Uh, so the, there was a kind of a, a transformation, and that came about because we recruited Ivan Yates as an 18-year-old as a councillor. Uh, and the dynamic of that was huge. Uh, we got Avril Doyle, we got Michael Darcy. Uh, and, and basically what, what we were doing was broadening the whole approach. If you take North Dublin, where we weren't representative, George Birmingham's father was a very popular dentist. Dentists are not popular, but he was. So when George Birmingham was selected as a candidate, people were voting for the father as much as for the son. Mary Flaherty's mother was a public health nurse, known all over the Finglas and whatever. When Mary, when, when her daughter ran for Fine Gael, they were voting for her. Uh, you know, this, the, the, the candidate selection was fairly critical uh, in that. And, the fact that we changed the rules so that we could say to a TD, look, if you don't allow us run this candidate, we'll add the candidate, and you'll wind up with your own and the added candidate and be in twice the mess. So we were able to chasten them by uh, doing things like that. But candidate selection was, was hugely important. What about the kind of people that Garrett and maybe yourself as well would have recruited in addition to that? I mean, was there a particular focus on on women, for instance? 
Yeah, I, I set up uh, Young Vinegale basically because we didn't have the support uh, or the conscious support of, of a lot of young young people. And I recruited Dan Egan uh, to actually do that job. And uh, we did it and, and it worked very well. We did the same thing with women. There were a lot of women who had the potential to work in politics. Gemma Hussey, for instance, was, was going in her own way in, in, the, in that direction. She, she was involved in the Women's Political Association. But uh, I, I interested people like Nuala Fennell and, and that, and Monica Barnes. We basically brought a group of active, intelligent women uh, into the scene. And given the identification thing, that helps because people were able to identify with them, even though they weren't elected. They, they were supporting us. And if people like that were supporting you, then the, the, a lot of the public would say, they can't be all that bad. What about the use you would have made, say, of polling or uh, that kind of research side of things, say, with focus groups, that kind of well, thing? Well, that was important because my background was as a marketing consultant, so I was fairly used to that. And I remember the, the, the 77 election, when they called the election, the first poll they had was a week after calling the election, instead of three weeks before it. Uh, and uh, the, 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 uh, there really was no serious understanding of the, the use of polls. Uh, whereas uh, I had been working at pre-testing advertising slogans and things like this in, in, in the commercial world and knew that uh, the potential. So what I basically brought in was a move from quantitative polling to qualitative polling. We were more interested in knowing through focus groups how people thought, how people reacted to various ideas and notions. And we developed that in quite a big way. Give us examples of how it was put into effect and the results, say, on a, on a poster or in a policy. Well, I used to sit very often for some of those focus groups behind the curtain, listening. And the actual words that people were using to describe something became hugely important to you. So we used to use those words to rephrase what we wanted to say. The 1977 election saw Jack Lynch, who Liam Cosgrave, I think, described as the most popular Irish man since Daniel O'Connell yeah. become Taoiseach. But Fianna Fáil changed its leader and then there was a different Taoiseach uh, midway through that doll. How did Fine Gael, how did you set about dealing with that change from Lynch to Hawhey? Well, basically, uh, Garrett had opened up the world for us a bit because people liked him. Uh, people who weren't interested in politics liked him. So that, that was one thing. And then along came Charlie High. He was a blessing for Fine Gael, a huge blessing, uh, because you had somebody to campaign against. He was a suspect character, as far as uh, quite a few people in the country were concerned. Uh, and uh, so you, you, ha you had something hard to campaign against. Uh, Jack Lynch, you couldn't have done that. He was too likable. Uh, Charlie Hawhey, there was the smell of sulphur, uh, and, and, and that was hugely important. It was something, would it be true to say, that Fine Gael ruthlessly exploited that sense of doubt in some people's minds about Mr. Oh, yeah, Hawley? absolutely. 
Absolutely. And and uh, we, we 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 were we knew what most people didn't know. We knew that Charlie wasn't what he appeared to be. He appeared to be a wealthy man and a kind of well-to-do fellow. And we knew that he was up to his neck in debt. Uh, and, and that was one of the reasons when Garrett uh, attacked High uh, on the thing. Garrett was well aware uh, that, that Charlie wasn't what he appeared at all. He was hugely conscious that there was a divide in Fianna Fáil and that the, 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 the Collie people were very upset by the thing. So what Garrett was trying to do when he made that uh, reference, he, he misused the words he always said he shouldn't have used the, the, the pedigree uh, notion. But the idea of attacking was to try to open up the split in Fianna Fáil uh, in so far as he could. Uh, and secondly, as a warning, uh, there, there was serious concern because the British monitor Irish politics largely because of Sinn Féin and the, the IRA, uh, to protect themselves. But they listen to everything that's happening in Ireland. There's a complete, people are, don't realise it. All communication in the Irish government is monitored. Uh, and Do you mean surreptitiously or do you mean just I studied the papers? No, no, it's, 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 it's based on the Cheltenham capacity and the, 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 the surveillance. They had the capacity to do it, and they did it to protect themselves. Uh, but they knew exactly what was going on. So uh, there was a serious worry when, when uh, Charlie wasn't what he appeared to be, that he was very subject to blackmail, uh, and, and that he could be coerced. Did you know, for instance, that he owed AIB a million? Yeah. How did you know that? Because bankers told us. Simple as that. Why then? Was it not stated explicitly in the doll under privilege? Because you can't prove. And uh, you have to pr be able to prove things you're, you're, when, when you're going to be attacked, you have to be able to stand it up in court. But not if you go in and say it in the doll, because you cannot be brought to court over something said. Well, Garrett did say it in the doll. He said he was unacceptable. But he didn't say he owed a million no, or he'd lost no, a million? No. No. Did he consider that? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. Mm. I was with Garrett the night before he made that speech, uh, and, and, and I, I'm fairly, I was fairly clear that what he was trying to do was to widen the split in Fianna Fáil. But wasn't that something you could say was done purely for political reasons, uh, as opposed to helping a, a nation govern itself? Well, it had nothing to do with the nation. It was pure, pure party politics. It, uh, uh, I mean, we, 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 we were in a fight to try and win an election to try and gain power. When Fianna Fáil got back in 82, after John Bruton's budget was rejected, uh, they finally got their act together, arguably, with um, a fairly difficult set of policies to restore the economy. But uh, due to misfortune, people dying like Bill Lochnan and I think was it um, uh, Jim Gibbons in hospital, the numbers uh, didn't hold up for them. Fianna Fine Gael just went after them ruthlessly at that stage. Yeah, but I mean... Uh... Fianna Fáil were, 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 were tremendously strong opponents. Uh, and, I mean, if you were going to, if you were going to win a battle, uh, you were going to have to be as ruthless as you conceivably could and use everything that, you, uh, that was remotely available to you. Uh, and that's what we did. So was Charles Hawhey right 
when he said that his opponents were treating him, they were holding him out as the devil incarnate? From, uh, from his perspective, that was a reasonable point of view, uh, because he, he would have said, gee, these fellas, uh, I mean, obviously don't trust me at all, and I'm not as bad as that. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, that from his perspective would have been a, a reasonable point of view. Was there a hope on the Fine Gael side um, that when he won that uh, election for the leadership, that some of the Fianna Fáil TDs who, who despised him, who opposed him, might come over oh, to yeah, the side. And that's, that's why Garrett's thing was aimed to try to do that. There was a serious uh, view that a, a number of Cully people uh, could split. Uh, and that was hugely important if you could get a split in, in, in your opponents. Uh, so that, that, that's essentially what Garrett was trying to do. He wasn't really going after how oh, he was. He was using how oh, he to, to to widen the split, and it didn't work. Might it have worked? Were there hopes that it would work? There were hopes that it would work, but it didn't. Uh, and and uh, you know, pe people who, who who they thought might move obviously decided no. It's better to stay. And ultimately then, when the Progressive Democrats were formed, in their first election, 87, they won 14 seats, most of them, I think, coming from Fine Gael. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's not surprising because uh, uh, Fine Gael were in government. Uh, they weren't doing particularly well. I mean, uh, in all honesty, that government wasn't a success in, in terms of managing the economy or otherwise because they couldn't get... Garrett was a consensus politician. He went for consensus the, uh, almost the whole time. And you can't have consensus between Fine Gael and Labour. Uh, so Labour scuppered almost anything. Dick Spring would agree with Garrett that you needed to do X, Y, or Z. And then he would go off to try and sell it to his own people and come back and say, I can't uh, sell it, we can't go, go down that road. And Garrett had taken the view that he, he, he saw the need to tackle the North of Ireland thing as being the prime thing. And as far as he was concerned, he was going to try and stay in power to enable him do the North of Ireland thing. And there was a consequence on that. And when Garrett left in 87 or 80, 86 or 87, uh, basically what he was trying to do was set up that the next government would be able to do what he wasn't able to do. So maybe if you'd left him there in 1982, uh, when McSharry had the whip hand in organising the public finances, the job of rectifying the, the, the economic situation would have been done far sooner because, as you said yourself, hmm. uh, Garrett wasn't able to get it done because of the, the, the Labour Party. Yeah, no, I, 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 it wouldn't have been hard to do better than Garrett did on it, uh, literally. And uh, if Fianna Fáil were there and, and didn't have Labour unable to go along, uh, then Fianna Fáil would have managed to, to do what the Department of Finance knew needed to be done. But it was the high factor that drove Fine Gael into pushing them from power oh, just when they were about to do the right thing. We, we, we were competing. We, I mean, as far as I was concerned, the, the people who, who, who employed me and whatever wanted to win. Uh, so I was going to, to do uh, but you could whatever say, was feasible. To... You, you could say that where the economy was concerned, the country paid a very high price because 
the job that needed to be done, yeah. that Fianna Fáil had embarked on, was delayed for another five yeah, years. Yeah, and Garrett had to weigh that up and he uh, concluded that, the, yes, a certain amount of damage would be done, but the gain on the Northern Ireland side would ultimately be of more importance. That was his view. Uh, I mean, people can, can disagree with it or otherwise, but I'm fairly certain that that's, that's what he did. And uh, when going out of power in 86, 87, the fact that he was setting up what needed, what he wasn't able to do, he was setting it up so that the next government could do it, uh, to me was proof of that, you know? There was a paradox in the way he dealt with Northern Ireland because he campaigned certainly ahead of the 81 election on the basis that he would not exclude the unionists, that he would listen to their concerns. Mm. In doing the Anglo-Irish Agreement deal with Mrs Thatcher, he actually went over the head of the unionists. He did, yeah, and uh, he was conscious. I remember Michael Lillis and I both felt that he wasn't taking enough account uh, of the unionist point of view. And Garrett ultimately uh, agreed with that. I mean, he think, but at the time, he was dealing with a situation that he had, and the best he felt he could do was what he did. When Fine Gael went into power then, um, the second time in 82, uh, you became government press secretary. Yeah. Uh, what was it like working in that position and working with Gareth Fitzgerald, who I think was seen as somebody who wasn't sufficiently in control, he was looking too much for consensus in Cabinet? Well, it, 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 it was quite difficult because, I mean, uh, I, I would be told what to say uh, to people and I knew perfectly well that I wasn't credible, so I never said it. So, I mean, I used to go along to you in the Paul Carr's room and basically say, this is what I'm told to say. Uh, and you knew perfectly well that it wasn't what I thought. Uh, you would frequently come in and say, not a sausage, uh, in response to queries from the political correspondents, what happened at Cabinet? Yeah, but I mean, people don't fully realise, I'd say about 20% of what government does is known at the time. It's not much more than that. I would say if that. Yeah, it's, it's certainly not much more than that. So when you're a government press secretary and you're trying to tell people what's the cabinet, you're, giving, you're going to tell them about 10% of what's actually going on. Because most of what government does is dealing with things that never happen. They're dealing with worries and concerns and, and, and uh, what have you, and they have ma major concerns about it. And it never happens, so therefore it's, it's never known. Crisis averted. Yeah. Um, would, you would you describe yourself as having been close personally as well as politically to Garrett? Professionally, yes. Not, not, not as uh, an individual human being. Uh, we had very little in common and very little, but uh, we, we had a professional relationship uh, which was close uh, and, and which was based on confidence. He, he was confident of what I would say, do or otherwise, uh, and I was perfectly happy with him, you know. Sean Dignan once observed uh, in the Paul Carr's room that you were the only government press secretary he'd observed <clears throat> who could interrupt his Taoiseach in mid-sentence, uh, without having to pay a price for it. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Garrett would have seen that as being helpful, uh, which is what it will, uh, we'll be trying to do. I mean, either to correct him. I spent my half my life trying to slow Garrett's speech down, 
Uh, I mean, when, the only contribution I ever made to any of the debates was sitting in front, absolutely telling him, slow down, slow down, slow down, because people don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, how would you and others like, say, Bill O'Hurley and, and the national handlers have gone about, how did you go about preparing Garrett for the big television debates uh, at election time? Not much. Frank Flannery and, and, and Bill O'Hurley and these would have helped him a bit. They would have gone through the obvious questions that, uh, that would arise. But Garrett was fairly confident that he, he, he wasn't going to take a line from anybody and say, because he had his own line and he was going to say it and, 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 and that was it. Uh, the, the, um, he had no, he had an affinity with the media. He, he, he wasn't afraid of the media. He, he, he liked journalists, he liked things like that. A lot of politicians don't. Uh, and he did, so he was comfortable with it. And he was probably over-comfortable in some of those debates, you know, because he, he would say, I'll, I'll tell them what the situation is and they'll believe it and, and uh, what have you. And on the relationship with Hawhey, I think Garrett used to occasionally refer to his relationships plural with Mr. Hawhey. What might that have been based on? I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm not particular. I mean, I, I was quite aware that when Charlie was in bad health in later life, Garrett used to visit him, uh, which suggested to me that there was more, there, there, there was a, a better personal relationship than I had ever observed or, or uh, than, than people were, were aware of. They went back a long way, of course, didn't they? They, they, were, they were in college together and uh, knew each other in college. And uh, I, I don't think they necessarily particularly liked each other at that stage. Uh, but there was, a, there was a certain respect uh, for each other. Gareth Fitzgerald, in the middle of 1981, shortly after he became Taoiseach the first time, he announced that he was going to embark on a constitutional crusade yeah. uh, to make this a, a less sectarian society, I think was how he presented it. Um, but it ran into various bumps along the road. Oh, yeah. Gareth was very pro-life. I mean, he, he was... He didn't think that abortion was a good thing, but he knew that you had to cope with the uh, with with the issue, and he made, if you like, the political mistake of agreeing with a, a, a number of very devout uh, Catholics who who felt very strongly on the abortion issue uh, that, that that you needed to prevent it happening in Ireland, uh, and that landed him in 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 great difficulty. Uh, and when he discovered that uh, what, what, what was being proposed uh, on abortion was actually going to lead to the courts approving abortion, which is what Peter Sutherland uh, managed to, 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 to explain fairly coherently, uh, he, he was in great difficulty at that point. And we had people like Alice Den and, and, and these who, who felt very strongly. There, there, was, there was probably about a quarter of the Fine Gael party felt very, very strongly on, on that point from a religious point of view. Uh, and uh, that meant it was very difficult to handle. He also, in 1986, uh, proposed deleting the constitutional prohibition on divorce. Yeah. And I think prior to the campaign being launched, the opinion polls were looking favourably at or suggesting there would be a favourable outcome from his point of view. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think, I think he would have been shattered by what actually happened with that. And, and the actual campaigning, uh, uh, the, the rural community, uh, which, which would have been conservative anyway, were able to, to get across the fact that the farm will be seized by uh, a woman who had been rejected, you know what I mean? And, and that all, the whole question of farm ownership and things like this, they bit in, in, into the debate. As an old marketing man, though, I mean, were you not there as government press secretary at the time warning him, Garrett, don't believe this? I mean, this is very dicey. He wouldn't have paid any attention to, the, to my view on that at all. He, I mean, he has his own... He, he has his views. I, I worked on organisation. He worked on politics. Uh, I didn't work on politics. Uh, when I was government press secretary, I could tell him that the reaction to this political thing will be severe or bad or... or, or uh, whatever, I would give advice. Last question, and I don't know if you want to answer this. Um, when Garrett resigned after losing in 87, the party chose Alan Jukes as leader. Was that a good decision? Probably was, I don't know. Garrett was always keen on uh, it. He, he preferred Alan Jukes to John Bruton. Uh, and and uh, would have gone down. I, I liked Alan. I thought he was a capable uh, fellow. And... Uh, he was just unlucky. Michael Noonan was the same. Uh, became leader and didn't eventually become... They did a ferocious amount of infighting afterwards, though, didn't they? I mean... They did, but, uh, I mean, Andy Kenny was made by the attack on him. It absolutely set him up. I mean, uh, there was a suspicion that Ender was too soft until Richard Bruton challenged him. At which point, everybody said, jeez, and, and this is tough, a, a really tough nut. Uh, he managed to beat back all, all these uh, uh, potential people. And, and, and again, he ultimately became, in my view, the most successful Fine Gael uh, of all time. And yet, Garrett waited until, you know, his last year in government before making him even a junior minister. Oh, yeah. Uh, Noonan didn't have him on his front bench, nor did Alan Jukes. No, no. Uh, they, they, but what actually made Kenny in that contest was Noonan uh, siding because there was a suspicion that the country would be in big trouble if Richard Bruton wasn't finance minister. And suddenly Michael Noonan turned up on Enda Kenny's side and suddenly Enda Kenny had a finance minister. Uh, which was crucial in terms of, uh, of the vote uh, internally in the party. But there was a middle-class Dublin antipathy to Enda Kenny because he was rural and considered less sophisticated than uh, Dublin 4, and it was wrong. Uh, but it was real, uh, you know, and Garrett shared it. Does the phrase civil war politics, does that mean much to you? Or what does it bring to mind when you hear it used? It really doesn't mean anything to me at all. Uh, I understand the civil war thing. I, I think it was probably quite strong for, for the 20s and 30s. I think after that, when, when the world war broke out and whatever, the whole, the whole thing changed. Uh, and I think the resurrection of the IRA uh, began to change that uh, because the IRA and, and the viciousness of, 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 of that 
uh, was so was apparent even to nationalists. Uh, and I think from that point on, the civil war thing was gone. How do you view the prospect, or do you think it could happen or will happen, that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil will merge? I doubt if they'll merge. Uh, I, I, the danger for Fianna Fáil is that they become like the SDLP. That's quite, quite, quite uh, a danger. Uh, that half of their existing party could ultimately move in a Sinn Féin direction, uh, in extremis. Frank Flannery, uh, your former comrade in arms, political arms, um, I think has speculated that Fine Gael could do business with Sinn Féin. What do you think? I don't know. Uh, I mean, people would say, should you talk to Sinn Féin after an election? If you're going to go into an election to form a government, you have to talk to everybody. So I have no doubt in the world that Sinn Féin and Fine Gael will, will be talking at some point. Whether they agree is a completely different matter.